Today's show is brought to you by Publish. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. We have an incredibly important episode today. I am joined by Andy Verity, uh, economics correspondent for BBC News and author of Rigged, the incredible true story of the whistleblowers jailed after exposing the rotten heart of the financial system. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Andy, this is a really important story that our viewers, they may think that they know the real story of the, the, the LIBOR scandal. That's the, the rate that underpinned close to half a quadrillion assets of, of assets around, around the world. A lot of people were jailed, uh, but you actually are, are arguing in this book and, and had, have argued that actually the wrong people were sent to jail, perhaps, and that we have the, the, the wrong message. Uh, so this, this implicates people, um, you know, the, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the SEC, the CFTC, this goes all the way to top. You've used the word cover-up. Um, so I am so, so glad you're here. This is, this is going to be a very uh, um, special, special talk. So how about uh, we start? Well, for, first of all, can, can you say what is the common narrative, the shibboleth, the headlines about, about, um, about LIBOR and the scandal, who were put to jail, and why, was this, why is this the wrong narrative? Well, the story's completely upside down, basically, Jack. And the story that some of your listeners will have heard over the years is that there's this interest rate called LIBOR that's been manipulated by a bunch of dodgy traders, people down the ranks of the banks, nothing to do with people at the top, nothing to do with government or central banks. No, it's all about crooks down the ranks of the banks. They've done something dodgy and gone to jail for it, and the banks paid billions of dollars of fines. That's the official received narrative, the narrative that's been the subject of a few books, actually, which very much follow the prosecutor's story, the regulator's story. But if you read my book, you'll realize that the story you've been given by the regulators, by the prosecutors, by the governments on both sides of the Atlantic is not the true story. And in fact, 37 people have been prosecuted and the American courts, years after they were started to be prosecuted, suddenly turned around at the beginning of 2022 and agreed that the case against the traders, the supposed crooks down the ranks, was bullshit. It was all wrong. It, there was not even a rule that they'd broken. And that's what's so incredible. Banks have paid $9 billion of fines for manipulating interest rates, specifically two rates called LIBOR and URIBOR. I'll explain what those are in a second. Um, and they've paid those $9 billion in fines, in spite of the fact that years later, the US court said they'd done nothing wrong. So that's why I've got the word incredible on the front cover. If you're a journalist, you, you think twice before you overhype your story. You know, you don't, if you call it incredible, then your editor comes back a few months later, and says, that's not incredible. They feel a bit, you know, disappointed. You don't want that. But this really is incredible. It's hard to believe that the authorities would do this. It's also hard to believe that the real manipulation of interest rates was done by central banks internationally. So in Europe, in the UK, and in the United States, there's evidence in Rigged, my book, which says, shows you, exhibits the actual words people were saying when they were carrying out instructions from those central banks to manipulate interest rates on a much bigger scale than any of the traders who were jailed. But I should probably explain what we're talking about. Should I give you a quick rundown, Jeff? Yes, please. Yeah, so, so basically, Interest rates, we think of interest rates when we hear from the Fed, when we hear from the Bank of England. But what is the actual interest rate that dictates what you pay on your car loan, on your, your mortgage, etc.? That's not dictated by those official rates set by central banks. That's dictated by the cost of the cost of borrowing on the wholesale money markets. So 
if the cost of borrowing between the banks or the cost of borrowing from money market funds lending on the wholesale money markets is going up, then your mortgage is going to cost more, your car loan is going to cost more, not the official rate. And the difference between those two became important in the credit crunch. So in the credit crunch, as some of your readers will recall, you'd have been quite young at the time, through the noughties, um, there was this huge irresponsible reckless lending went on. And this is detailed in things like, you know, margin call and the big short. It's now the stuff of legend how in the noughties, the banks, first of all, convinced governments to deregulate in the late 90s, and that enabled them to lend lots more. And then they paid themselves bonuses based on how much they lent. And then they got really reckless because they wanted bigger bonuses. So they started lending to people they wouldn't normally lend to, including things like single mums in Cleveland, Ohio, who wouldn't normally think of buying a home, but were offered these super cheap interest rates, really, really low. What they weren't necessarily told is that two years on, those rates wouldn't be so low. They might double or treble. And so you have this phenomenon called jingle mail, where a lot of those people who couldn't afford to pay their mortgages anymore because their repayments have doubled or trebled, a bit like some people's are now, those people who couldn't afford to pay those mortgages were sending in their keys, jingle mail. In the United States, you have what's called non-recourse loans, so they don't follow you around. In Britain, unfortunately, if you get into trouble, it follows you around. It doesn't matter if you leave your house. But lots of people were just sending these in, and it meant that those loans would never be repaid. Ben Bernanke, in about May 2007, gave an assessment of the scale of the problem. He said it's about $100 billion. Suddenly, all the banks seized up in fear. Oh, my God, I can't lend anything because I don't know how much I've lost on subprime U.S. mortgages, mortgages lent to people with poor credit records. So I don't know how much I've lost and I don't know how much you've lost, my counterparty. So they stopped lending to each other until they could work out how much they'd lost. That was the credit crunch. Basically, the credit markets froze up and no one was lending to each other anymore on the money markets. That created a problem for the measure of lending on the money markets. That's LIBOR. So your mortgage, your car loan, really depends on the real cost of borrowing in the money markets. And that's tracked by a thing called LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, or was until about a year or two ago. For 35 years, all loans were set at LIBOR plus 1%, 2%, et cetera, around there. What's LIBOR? It's the London Interbank Offered Rate. So even in dollars, we're measuring interest rates by the London Interbank Offered Rate. What's that? It's this thing that was in invented back in the late, well, it's actually invented in the late 60s. And what was going on there was big loans made for things like power projects, um, big ships, et cetera, where you'd have a syndicate of, of banks lending the money. You wouldn't be able to set a fixed interest rate because interest rates might move before the deal was done months after. So they came up this way of with this way of tracking fluctuating interest rates by taking a sample of the cost of borrowing in the money markets every day. That's how it started. And what they do is every day, a trader on the cash desk of each of the banks, each of 16 banks, would submit an estimate of how much they thought it would cost them to borrow cash. So they'd say, for example, uh, JP Morgan might say, we think it's going to cost us 3.5% to borrow uh, $100 billion over three months. And then Barclays would say, well, we think it's going to cost us 3.41%. And they'd all be within a hundredth of a percentage point or two up until the credit crunch. But when the credit crunch came along and no one was lending cash, suddenly 2007, people think, well, I can't tell how much it's going to cost me to borrow cash. So it's finger in the wind, you know, it's pin the tail on a donkey. So they started guessing. Now, when they're guessing, they, 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 they have a bias. They didn't want to be too realistic, too close to the much more expensive borrow, real cost of borrowing cash. If, so just to explain that, 
Um, if you really did want money, you could go via the foreign exchange markets. And there you would pay a much higher interest rate than the interest rate that was stated on the cash markets. Now, the cash markets is what you're supposed to be borrowing at. But a lot of banks were going into the foreign exchange markets and borrowing at substantially more, like 20 or 30 basis points, 20 or 30 hundredths of a percentage point more. That meant that what they were saying about the real cost of borrowing cash was a lie. It was a they, lie. Yeah, they were lowballing it effectively. So they were pretending they could borrow at 3.2% when actually they were at the same time going into the foreign exchange markets and borrowing at 3.5%. Now, 30 basis points doesn't sound like that much, but if you work on the foreign exchange markets, you know that's huge. Like after September the 11th, you had a move of like less than 20 basis points. So if it's 30 basis points out, that's that's vast. So the banks were all massively understating the real cost of borrowing cash. Yeah, and, and so so you know, people think about the great financial crisis. I think you know the story about subprime mortgages and uh, mortgage-backed securities, CDOs. That's you know pretty uh, you know, pretty well understood. Uh, that's on the asset side. When you're yes. talking about LIBOR, a lot of this is how banks fund themselves on the liability side. And you know banks did not have a lot of equity. They uh, were, were not very well capitalized. The yes. asset-backed commercial paper markets were, were freezing up, so they had to fund themselves in the, the cash market. Uh, and this is the that the, the, they fund themselves based on LIBOR. How much will Barclays lend to JP Morgan? Or probably more likely, how much will JP Morgan lend to, to Barclays? Oh, it's 3.5%. So let's say the Fed funds rate, the, the, you know, the, the risk-free rate, basically, set by the Federal Reserve is uh, 4.5%. Let's just say it's 5%. LIBOR yeah. is you know, probably slightly higher than that. And normally, it's 5.1%. And in yeah. 2005, it was 5.1%. And it... The, and that stated rate officially matched what Barclays was lending to Barclays in 2007. If you you know looked up your pulled up your Bloomberg terminal, it still said LIBOR was 5.1 percent. But you're saying the markets had frozen up. J.P. Morgan wouldn't lend to Barclays unless they were paid 5.3 percent, or in some cases yeah. zero. I mean, you know, what, what's the, what is the price of no apples? I mean, it's yeah, the price of no apples. The exactly. rate of a, of a loan that is not going to be made at all, and. Uh, and so that's how sort of your, your book starts is people's at Barclays who actually were you dared to tell the truth. Everyone was lowballing because yes. and, and the Bank of England encouraged that lowballing at, at some that's point. Right. That's the background, you know, and in a way, you all you need to know is that LIBOR is supposed to be the measure of the real cost of borrowing. And each of the banks are supposed to give an honest estimate of how much it would cost them to borrow money. So each of 16 banks, they take an average and they strip out the top four and the bottom four. That's important because they're trying to avoid manipulation. And then they take an average of the middle eight. So uh, traders like Peter Johnson at Barclays were asked every morning at 11 a.m. to say, I reckon I could borrow dollars at 3.5%. And then somebody else would say 3.51, 3.52, and they take an average of all of those. That would be the LIBOR rate for the day. Um, now, what happened during the crisis, as you said, was that because the credit markets have frozen up, they could only get cash if they paid much higher interest rate, but they weren't willing to admit how much more they were going to have to pay. What Peter Johnson tried to be honest and say, no, look, this is this, this is rubbish. Everybody's understating what they're really paying. They're, they're lying and pretending it's cheaper to borrow dollars than it really is. In order to try to be honest, he said, no, I'm going to put it where it really is, where the market, where I can get money here. But everybody else was saying here. So he's the only and, one who's being truthful in 2007. Exactly. So he tried to put that rate in in August 2007 at, at the reflecting the actual cost, higher cost, he'd now pay to borrow money because he, people were saying, look, if I'm going to take the risk of borrow, lending you money, I will. 
but I'll charge you a lot more for it. So effectively, the cost of borrowing had gone up, but LIBOR wasn't reflecting that because the banks were too afraid to tell the truth. So they all collectively understated, basically all the banks were lying about the real cost of borrowing dollars in bulk. Um, and he was trying to tell the truth. What happened was, because Barclays stood out on the LIBOR rates, a Bloomberg journalist wrote a story saying, oh, Barclays looks like it's in trouble because it's paying more. So that must mean that its competitors are charging a premium because it's weak. It's, it's like Bear Stearns. It's having issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the next Bear Stearns. It's, it's going to run into trouble. It's, 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 it's going to need a bailout, et cetera. And people start selling the shares. And so he starts getting calls from the top from his head office, first of all, from his, the managers above him who are talking to the boardroom. And this is one of the things that was covered up. The boardroom was sending instructions down, down to Peter Johnson, who was on the trading floor, saying, you can't tell the truth. We don't want you to tell the truth. We want you to get down in the lying, low-balling pack, they wouldn't put it quite that way, of all banks who are understating the real cost. Yeah, they don't, put, they don't say lying, but I mean, they, they do go pretty close of saying, so you don't want me to be honest. Yeah, we yeah. don't want you to be honest. I mean, yes. it's so crazy, but it is yes, pretty right. And you can hear it on the tapes, his frustration. Um, he, he confides at one point in a, a, a colleague called, so Ryan Reich is in New York. He's like 25, he's young, he's keen, and he's talking to this old uh, cash trader in Barclays in London, Peter Johnson, who's telling him, this is so, I'll be polite and use the word effing, sick. This is so effing sick, the rates that everybody are putting in. All the banks were lying, and he goes through them one by one. You can hear it on the tape. He says, they, they're, they're all understating what they're paying to borrow cash. Peter Johnson. Hey, Peter, it's Ryan. This is so fucking sick. Why? It's so, so fucking wrong. It should be higher? Much, much higher. Really? Much, much higher. Believe me, you've got no idea how much higher. Wow. The only reason I went 30 in one month was because that's the highest that anybody else was going to go and I didn't want to be seen to be an outsider. I wanted to go 50. For one month? Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. In, in one month, for instance, ABN Amsterdam was, it is still paying 40. During the morning, he got 300 million at 40. The best offer of cash is at 60, which is Chase Slam. If you, if you pay Euro LIBOR and swap it back to dollars, you're paying 570. Wow. You sort, you sort of get the drift. People are setting these so ridiculously low, it's just getting to be a laugh. And I'm actually quite worried that there's some kind of reputational risk here for any bank which sets them this low. You look at some of the people, you know, these arseholes, like you've got Deutsche set at 5.18, well, we all know he's in the shit. HSBC set at 5.20, well, we all know that he's just taking on $45 billion worth of sieve. West LB set at 5.22, he's in the shit. Royal Bank of Scotland, 5.18. Well, if, if Royal Bank of Scotland is setting at 5.18, why is ABN, who I believe they took over, paying 5.40? So that's the one to think about. Uh, Citibank, he's in the shit, he's, he was set at 5.18. Royal Bank of Canada doesn't even trade dollars in London, he's set at 5.20. And UBS, in the shit, 5.16. So you tell me whether those libels are right. You know, they're wrong. They are so fucking wrong. And unfortunately, I don't feel that I can, you know, unless I'm given the green light to go ahead and put rates where I think they are, uh, I don't think I can have any influence. If I had my say, I'd have gone five and a half. All right. Thanks a lot, man. That's on the 29th of November 2007. Another day later, 
you hear him on another call. These calls were all recorded at the time because traders' calls were all recorded for, for administration purposes, where he's been instructed by a middle manager on orders from the board, the 31st floor of Barclays, not to tell the truth and to put his LIBOR lower down where the, where the low-balling, lying pack of banks is, rather than trying to be honest and tell the truth and stand out. Mr. Lisa doesn't want us to be outside the Trump house. Jesus Christ. All right, so, OK. And that apparently chatted on the whole of the first floor, by the way. So he keeps on getting instructions like that throughout 2007, 2008, throughout the crisis. He blows the whistle. He tells the Bank of England about it. He tells the Fed about it. And there's a phone call where you can hear that. And in that phone call, he tells a Fed official that LIBORs are absolute rubbish. In other words, the cost of borrowing dollars that's officially being published, which is also being used to set the interest rates on trillions of loans, is rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. Hi, I'm calling from New York Fed. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. I was wondering if I can get any color you have on how your dollar's trading, where you expect LIBORs. In three months, LIBORs are going to come out at 353 but please don't believe it, it's absolute rubbish. Uh -huh. I, I'm putting my line more at 4%, and I can tell you I've just gone through three money brokers in London, pre-bond, ICAP and tradition. Pre-bond have no offers at all in the market. ICAP have no offers. Now, when I said, where can I get money if I wanted it, they said four and a half. Tradition have got no offers. They could have one offer out of Hong Kong at 4%, but he's gone home. And I think the problem is that the market so desperately wants LIBORs down that it's actually putting wrong rates in. And I have to say, dollar LIBORs are incorrect and they're too low. Why? Much too if low. this is what you're seeing, then why are these being said? I mean, I think Barclays is on the panel. Yeah, I'd love to know. No, I really would love to know. No, I mean, I, I know that I'm consistently high, but I think I'm consistently correct. All right. And, well, thanks uh, very much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem at all. He's telling the Fed that. And he's telling the Fed that it's too low by about a percentage point. On the money markets, that's huge, so about 100 basis points. What does the Fed do a few days later? It, it, well, the evidence suggests that it asks Chase Manhattan to get into the market and put in a lower offer, to a, a below market offer. When no one else was lending, suddenly Chase Manhattan New York puts in an offer much lower. And the rumor is, it's never quite been proved that the Fed was involved. But what isn't just a rumour, because we have evidence of it, was that the Bank of England was intervening in sterling LIBOR and instructing Barclays to put its LIBORs much lower, way below the real cost of borrowing. Because the problem is, for central banks, before the credit crunch came along, the real interest rates on the market, as shown by LIBOR, moved in lockstep. When the Fed moved rates up, mm -hmm. the rates in the market went up. When they moved them down, it moved down. But the credit crunch, because it meant that fear was operative and the real cost of borrowing was determined as much by fear of how much you'd lost on subprime mortgages as it was by whatever the Fed said, suddenly they'd lost control of interest rates. And this is terrifying for a central bank. That's its key power. How do we regain control of interest rates? Well, there's two ways you can do it. One is legitimately. You can put schemes out there as they did with TARP and various other things. We'll take all your rubbish, all your bad loans that you made, and we'll pretend they're worth something. And we'll lend you money on them. That was what TARP was. And it, and it did eventually solve the problem, but they were impatient for it to be solved. They wanted to see results straight away. So all of the central banks, the evidence in the book suggests that all of the central banks, not just the Bank of England, not just the Fed, but also the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the Bank de France, Banca d'Italia, Banca de España, that they were all involved in telling the banks in their countries to push LIBOR and EURIBOR down to try to get the crisis under control. 
But that, unfortunately, was involving them in exactly the sort of manipulation for which traders were later prosecuted, while all the evidence of their involvement was covered up, not only from Congress and Parliament, but also from the juries in their trials. And that's why it's such a scandal. When you have highly relevant exculpatory evidence like that, and people can go through a whole trial and the judges say, oh, it's not relevant. The fact that a central bank did something hundreds of times bigger than this defendant here is not relevant to this particular trial. Now, the central banks themselves, I've gone to them for comment on this. They um, either don't comment or they say they never instructed the banks to do anything illegal. And that's interesting because the law on this that locked up the traders was retrospective. There was no law at the time to say you can't manipulate LIBOR or Euribor. There weren't even really rules. Um, it was retrospectively created the law um, to prosecute the traders, essentially. And now it's been overturned in the States. And since the book came out last year, there's a court of appeal hearing now in the UK, which may overturn that in the UK. And the implications of that, in the UK, nine people were jailed. In the US, no one went to jail, although some people were convicted, but 37 altogether were prosecuted, including Americans. Some Americans went to jail in the UK um, and some Brits who were tried in the United States. Um, they, they, those, those guys all went through hell and had their careers and their lives destroyed. And one woman um, when on, on something that the US court now says wasn't even against any rules. And the banks paid all those fines to get the regulators off their back. And this is the really unsettling thing. It shows, the whole story shows um, how the US banks lawyers and the UK banks lawyers, the banks lawyers essentially did the regulators and prosecutors work for them. And the fact that the regulators and prosecutors allowed them to do that meant that the banks lawyers could manipulate justice. Basically, this is power and wealth manipulating justice. Here you go. I tell you, don't blame the guys at the top. Don't blame the central banks or the governments. Don't blame the boards. That evidence that pointed to the board of Barclays, which it set out in my book, was kept out of the trials of the Barclays traders, lots of it, because it was said it was, it was not relevant. The Barclays traders, the case against them, it's complicated, but basically it's, it, was, it was not regarded as criminal at the time, whereas lowballing, what we've just been describing, shows interest rates way below the real cost of borrowing cash. What the traders were doing were just asking for a squeak here, a squeak there, up or down, within the range where cash was actually trading. So they weren't asking for anything false. So it was not a lie. They, they were choosing uh, a variety. There was a band of truth and they were choosing a basis point here, a basis point there within that band of truth that benefited their positions or benefited the position of the other trader at the bank who was asking for the favor. But it was not a lie. Exactly. So when, when, whenever a bank quotes on something, it quotes commercially. You know, so the, the example I use, there's always a range of prices. There's no one true price. In the trials, they tried to say there's one true cash rate, but, but it's ridiculous. That, that's just economically wrong-headed to say that there's a true price and a false price. Prices aren't true or false. They, yeah, there's always a bid and an offer. Even yeah, for Apple, you know. Bid, bid or offer. And, and so if I, a good example is, if you ask me the price of oranges today, how would I give you an answer? Well, I'd, I'd probably go online and look it up at my local store. What's it? What's it at Costco? You know, what's it at Walmart? You know, they're not going to have exactly the same prices on their oranges. They'll have a, a small range, a few pennies apart, right? So how do I choose between those? Well, I could flip a coin, you know, but if I happen to be in the oranges business, you know, I, I might prefer the price of oranges to be lower if I'm a net buyer or higher if I'm a net seller. So should I ignore that consideration about, you know, the fact that I'm a net buyer or a net seller? Well, the law now says you must 
otherwise you're doing something corrupt. But actually at the time they were just thinking, well, there's nothing to choose between them. We might as well choose the one that's in our interest. So they were quoting commercially. If I, um, if you asked me for a price on your house and I said it's going to be $245,000, 113 cents, you'd look at me funny, wouldn't you? You'd think, come on, Verity, you're talking rubbish. You can't price my house to a cent. Yeah, no. if you're saying, oh, I think the odds that, you know, the, the Jets are going to beat the Patriots is 41.238. How, how do you know, you know, precision should give people uh, pause? Yes, exactly. Especially when prices are concerned. So prices are, are not a true or false reflection of some underlying commodity. They always also reflect other commercial considerations. So, you know, the price of lemonade goes might go up when it's hot and down when it's cold. You know, um, the, the price of an airline ticket might cost more when you're closer to the date because the airline has an interest in planning. So it gives people discounts for booking early. Those aren't any con. You know, the electrician might charge you more for coming out on the weekend. Is he yeah. conning you? No, he's not. These are, they, these are just commercial considerations. And what happened, though, was the information about lowballing came bubbling out during the crisis. The Wall Street Journal printed stuff about it. The regulators started looking into it, but lowballing was inconvenient to prosecute because it pointed to the top. You're going to have the Bank of England implicated, the UK government. There's a tape where Peter Johnson, a Barclays trader, is instructed by his boss, Mark Dearlove, to push his rates down in the middle of the crisis on the 29th of October 2008. Just a few days after the Fed's been told that rates are too low, he's told to make them even lower. And He's, he's reluctant to do it. He doesn't want to be telling even more of a lie than, than most of the banks already are. But his boss, Mark Dearlove, tells him that the instructions come from the UK government and the Bank of England. And the evidence in the book suggests that that was actually an international thing. So that was just after there'd been a meeting of G7 finance ministers and also an emergency meeting in Paris of Gordon Brown and Angela Merkel and other world leaders, how to manage a crisis. And they talked about coordinated moves. They talked about how it had to be coordinated but at a national level. And just at that same time, you can see on the charts, the rates for Eulibor and Eurobor go down. So there's really strong evidence that the prosecutors who knew about this had and kept from the public and Congress and never followed. Instead of prosecuting the fraud, the real fraud, the real lie that pointed to the top, they went after something that the US courts now say wasn't a fraud at all. And when you say central banks were encouraging uh, the banks to lower their rates of, of LIBOR, make it lower, I mean, they yes. would want the, the banks to lend at lower rates, but, but the, the banks aren't going to do that. So instead, they've said, uh, lower the stated rates, just so basically yes. lie and, and, and encourage them. I just want to, uh, a few things I want to highlight. Earlier, you referenced sterling. Of course, that's, you know, reference the, the uh, UK currency, the, the British pound, and then yeah. Uh, when we're talking about real rates, we're not talking about, you know, inflation adjusted rates. We're talking about true rates compared yes, to, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the stated LIBOR rates. And yeah, I, I think people who have a belief of you know, LIBOR, uh, you know, often referred to as euro dollars or you know, futures, LIBOR futures, euro dollar futures, the euro dollar curve, people refer to that as the truth, as, oh, this curve is telling us this, there's there's a message in this curve. I mean, and, and, and as well as, you know, LIBOR has been replaced by SOFR, uh, Secured Overnight Financing Rate. People say SOFR is horrible. We need to go back to the days of, of LIBOR. I think that is just those, they're, they're driving off an intellectual cliff. And this book, Rigged, is a guide to, 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 to rescue people from that. That is just so, so uh, wrong because your book reveals just how, as the book says, rigged it is. And by the way, you're saying, okay, the people who went to jail 
uh, for for these uh, you know things that weren't a crime of uh, I, I don't have a word for it, but but not lowballing, but just traders' requests. They trade, called it traders' requests. People would fail traders for saying higher or lower, please, and, but and, and, within and a few percentage points. Yeah, the true scandal and the cover up is lowballing, and that goes all the way to the top central banks, SEC, Bank of England, Fed. Yeah, I I would uh, uh, agree with you, but I would say I, I you know don't necessarily uh, think that traders' requests are morally right or any way. But I would just say that the point of your book is that there's something that was way way worse that was covered up. Well, morally right or wrong, I mean, what what the U.S. courts have now decided um, is is that there was no law or rules against them. What they were doing was commercial, I think, rather than rather than amoral. No one's ever there were never any complaints from victims in, in throughout nine criminal trials on both sides of the Atlantic. There was never one victim produced, and that was for a really good reason that no one could identify any losses. They didn't identify any losses. They didn't even identify. The theory of the crime was this. So just to explain what traders' requests were, the people who were prosecuted had put in, had made requests every day. Could we have a high LIBOR? Could we have a low LIBOR? And it was their job to look at the trading position of the bank and say, is it in which way is the bank facing? Is it in our interest for LIBOR to go high or for it to go low? When they were making a request from the cash desk, those swaps traders, they were saying, could we have it high or low? They weren't saying where. They weren't saying up here or down there because it was only the cash traders who could see the offers coming in. So the cash traders would have, look at the offers on the market. One would be from JP Morgan. One would be from, say, HSBC Beijing or something. And those would be, one would be at 3.45, one would be at 3.43. If the desk wanted it low, they could reflect the lower offer. If the desk wanted it high, they would could reflect the higher offer. But both of them were accurate answers to the LIBOR question. At what interest rate could you borrow? And that, so long as they were answering that accurately, they weren't making any false statements. And that's what the US court originally said. But instead of acknowledging that and seeing that early on, the prosecutors and authorities had what I regard as confirmation bias. So when they were going through the evidence, they looked at the lowballing evidence. Okay, that's clearly false. 20 or 30 basis points off the truth. Right. With this, it's still within the band of the truth. But instead of saying, okay, well, that's fair enough and understanding properly, they just pushed ahead with their case. And because everybody's so afraid of the US courts, because you get threatened with a great big jail term if you go to trial and you don't win, and you could get off with no jail at all if you go along with the DOJ story. Everybody just goes along with the DOJ story. Oh yeah, what I did was corrupt. And the people who end up being prosecuted are ironically the most honest. Those guys who are saying, no, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. It was just what, I, what had always been the practice. It was a commercial thing high or low, within the range where cash was trading. And the US courts have, have, have eventually agreed with that, and the, the UK courts may too. But, but it, it, still, it still shocks me to reflect, really, Jack. Um, or, or, although um, you, can, you can frown, if you like, on commercial quoting, which is what we're really looking at here, you know, banks aren't charities. They do what's according to their, to their self-interest, and the traders in doing that are actually doing their job. Their, their job is to uphold the bank's self-interest as much as they possibly can. Um, and arguably, the central bankers, too, were only doing their job. But look at who had the victims. The victims were of lowballing. There were, there were banks who'd lent out loans at LIBOR, and therefore, because it was too low, were collecting less money than they needed to fund. And they, some of them went under and had to be rescued by the U.S. taxpayer. They'd launched some litigation about it. And they went under because LIBOR was too low. So those were real victims. In all of the trials of the traders for asking for these tiny requests for adjustments commercially within the range of rates on offer, in all of those trials, there was never one victim produced. 
And the real victims, in a way, are those people who've been prosecuted and those people who lost money. But, but what makes me still indignant about it is that no one has investigated the original wrong, the lowballing during the crisis. You know, and, and it's only by publishing a book that anybody knows about this. And uh, a radio series, you can listen to the Lobel tapes before, if you want to hear the story before you buy the book, you can give that a listen, the Lobel tapes by BBC. Um, and that will give you a short, condensed account of the story and why the real crime has been covered up, while what the US courts now say wasn't a crime at all has been prosecuted. Right. And so... I wonder, is, is the reason that victims of lowballing were, he was able to find victims of lowballing, but it was not able to find victims of traders' request, was the yes. reason, because lowballing was all one directional. All the banks were saying uh, LIBOR was lower than it actually was, whereas HSBC is too high by five basis points, Lloyd's is too low by five basis points, and so that didn't affect the overall reported LIBOR. Well, if you look at the actual maths, um, usually the requests by the traders at their cash desks before the crisis to put LIBOR high or low were of a range of one or two or three basis points max. So no more than 0.03 percentage points, no more than three hundredths of a percentage points, usually two or one. Not enough to materially damage the the amount that, that uh, small banks in the States would collect for lending at LIBOR. Um, whereas the lowballing was really damaging and people were collecting a lot less than they than they would have done and banks actually went under for it. Um, and, you know, people made money as well. The banks, by understating what they're really paying to borrow cash, they gained a commercial advantage. It really was a fraud. You know, so where you have evidence of a fraud, including audio evidence, that it, it was ordered from the top, that's not prosecuted, whereas it was for something that wasn't a fraud at all. And that, that's kind of why it's rigged. It's the, the, the book sets out how power and wealth can manipulate justice. And at the hands of banks cooperating with prosecutors, a load of scapegoats were thrown under the bus and carried the can effectively for the financial crisis. Because this all blew up in 2012 in the UK. Um, the crisis had happened 2007, 2008. There was a huge public anger that was festering over the fact that no banker had seemed to pay any price for all the irresponsible, reckless lending that we were bailing them out for them. All the taxpayers were being told, we've got to go through austerity, we've got to repair the public finances, we've got to cut back public services. Bankers are being paid their fat bonuses. Yeah, well, bankers are paid their fat bonuses and their pensions, and they get away with it. There seems to be no accountability. And anger really came down when the regulators put out their statements condemning Barclays in June 2012. And here we had a whole week of it where all this anger was fizzing up in Parliament and the public and the media. And people saying, we need criminal prosecutions. And so they got criminal prosecutions. The Serious Fraud Office in this country had decided a year before that there was no case, that they weren't going to prosecute it. But they changed their minds for political reasons because there was so much noise in Parliament. So in a way, in that regard, we're not that different to the witch trials of the past, where in Salem or in England early 17th century, there was a hysteria against a certain group of people and you know the evidence in the trials were twisted there's an element of sink or swim as well here you know the witches were told sink and you're innocent swim and you'll be hanged as a witch or burned as a witch so it's, it's kind of similar here to some extent if you tried if you went to trial and say no i'm honest i'm i, I didn't do anything wrong likelihood is your life would be destroyed and you, you'd be prosecuted and you might end up in jail but if you went along with something you didn't believe then then you you might be all right and that, that comes out really clearly in the book 
So here we've got now this caused a splash in Parliament, this book when it was published um, in the middle of last year. And the MPs on both left and right asked for there to be a parliamentary inquiry. We haven't got that yet, but we do have these courts of appeal hearings. And if they do reverse the convictions we've already had, like one guy, Tom Hayes, who was initially sentenced to 14 years in jail, if they overturn those convictions, well, it basically reverses more than 10 years of cover-up, more than 10 years of what may turn out to be having prosecuted the wrong people. Today's show is brought to you by Public. Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leaving 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, no minimums or maximums, just 5.1% interest on your cash. You can transfer or withdraw cash as often as you like, and you get up to $5 million FDIC insurance. Grow your cash at an industry-leading 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account at Public. Go to public.com slash forward guidance to learn more. That's public.com slash forward guidance. This is a paid endorsement for public.com. 5.1% APY as of December 20, 2023 and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High yield cash accounts are available for US members only. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So who should have been prosecuted? Because you know, looking at the book, it, it, it seems the evidence, uh, uh, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that uh, people at the Bank of England, at the Federal Reserve, at the BBA, which manages LIBOR, were very aware of this, and they were kind of pulling the strings. But the people who often, the people who are caught on tape are, you know, the, the traders who are saying, oh, yeah, the Bank of England said this, the, the Bank of England said that. So uh, t- take us back to, you know, uh, uh, 2007. What is the evidence of the higher ups blessing or, or, you know, telling people, no, keep LIBOR low. You know, in other words, wh- uh, where, wh- you know, where's the smoking gun of people at the very top saying manipulate LIBOR lower instead of the cash traders keeping LIBOR low and the people at the top approving of it and not saying anything? Well, there's one smoking gun, which is as good as any journalistic smoking gun you could get, which is the audio evidence, the phone call that I referred to earlier between Mark Dearlove, um, Incidentally, the nephew of Sir Richard Dearlove, who is the head of the security services in the UK and MI6, but that's just an indication of his background. Mark Dearlove um, getting in touch with Peter Johnson and telling him to lower his LIBOR below what it really is. And it's very clear from that audio, you can listen to it yourself, that it's telling him to do something against his wishes that's ordered from the top, from the Bank of England and the UK government. The bottom line is you're going to absolutely hate this, but we've had some very serious pressure from the UK government and the Bank of England about pushing our LIBORs lower. Below a realistic level of where I think I can get money. PJ, I'm completely 100% on your side on this. You and I agree that it's the wrong thing to do. I am as reluctant as you are, and these guys have just turned around and said, just do it. Now, if that was all the evidence there was, that would be one thing. But that chimes in with evidence from the same day that came out in Parliament in 2012, where Paul Tucker of the Bank of England got in touch with Bob Diamond, who was the boss, the American boss of Barclays at the time. Or no, actually, he was he was deputy at the time. He later became boss. He got in touch with him and said, gave him a suggestion that Barclays should get its LIBORs down that came from Whitehall, from the government. And then we have further evidence set out in the book that indicates that evidence that the pressure was coming from Downing Street. So 10 Downing Street, our version of the White House. The Prime Minister. The Prime Minister. Um, and 11 Downing Street is where the Chancellor is. So the evidence 
indicates that it was coming from Downing Street, the pressure to lower LIBOR. Whether Downing Street knew that LIBOR was already fraudulent, I can't say or not, and therefore whether it was instructing a fraud, I don't know whether Downing Street knew at the time, did anyone tell them? That's the sort of thing that a public inquiry could perhaps try to establish, which is what David Davis MP and John McDonnell MP have been calling for. Um, but you do have plentiful evidence of instructions coming from the top. The, the evidence of instructions coming from the top in Europe is also pretty strong. You look at the data and you can see that all the French banks, for example, suddenly drop their Euribor estimates of the cost of borrowing euros all at once by more than they've ever dropped before, more than they did after 9-11. So how does that happen all at once just in France, but not in Germany when they're all dealing in the same market, the market for borrowing euros? Can't be market factors. It can only be national factors, and you can see it. I've set all that evidence out in a timeline which is publicly available. It's called Rigged, You Be the Judge. If you Google that in my name, you can see the timeline, and you can hear the evidence yourself and look at the data that shows that all the banks were dropping at once. Now, the only way that can have happened is coordinated by a national central bank. And then there's other evidence, other audio, which suggests there's a call from Barclays to the ECB, where the ECB is hinting that, that banks are going to be told to lower their Eurobond rates. And altogether, what a former government prosecutor in the UK has said is overwhelming evidence of um, orders from the top to lower LIBOR. In the case of the Fed, mm -hmm. um, the evidence of the direct instructions is less clear. It's more in the realm of rumour. Well, what, why is Chase coming to the market when no one else is? Why is it giving a below market bid? The rumour at the time was that the Fed had asked it to do so. But certainly we know from Ben Bernanke at the time that all kinds of extraordinary things were being done. And I think it's also important to say that I don't think anybody acted with criminal intent. You know, the law has been created retrospectively to try to prosecute traders. But if you do that, apply your standard universally. The law is supposed to be applied universally. If manipulation of LIBOR to make it false was bad by traders, it was also bad by central banks. It was also bad by government officials. But what we know now is that it's something that really all of your listeners, I think, would be interested to know. Somebody who knows all this, somebody who knows all about the evidence that pointed to the top and hasn't made it public, somebody who's watched as 37 people have been prosecuted, watched as banks have paid $9 billion of fines, and then the US courts have subsequently said, no, this was all nonsense, the case against them. Well, that somebody is the man Joe Biden appointed to regulate Wall Street. His name's Gary Gensler. Chairman sent, of the SEC. Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC. I sent right to reply letters to him. He had, hasn't replied to a single one. Maybe he doesn't feel accountable to the British media, but perhaps the American media should be asking why their regulator, who's taken all this kudos for pursuing banks for LIBOR, has never told anybody about this evidence that pointed to governments and central banks. Yeah, and uh, when the your book starts, uh, Gary Gensler is just appointed the, the head of the CFTC, and it starts with a, quite a favorable impression of Gary Gensler. As he's listening to the LIBOR scandal, he's smiling. He's saying, oh, the crooks are being found out and he had a reputation he, he made a lot of money as working at goldman sachs and then he you know was i think you know according to your book supported a, a deregulation of wall street but he had a you know a, a voltage he, he he turned around and actually he was opposed by the progressive but initially he, he was quite hard on wall street hard on the banks and so that's yes. how your book begins describe his journey this is a guy who is in the clinton government but yes um what you say is pretty much right. So in the late 90s, he was one of the guys who opposed a bill to regulate derivatives, um, which the head of the CFTC then, Brooksley Bourne, had said, we need this. And it turns out that you really did need to regulate derivatives. 
but he resisted re regulating derivatives. So when he was proposed by the Obama administration to be head of the CFTC, Bernie Sanders and another progressive, Maria Cantwell, opposed him in Congress and said, no, we can't have this guy. You're putting someone in charge of cleaning up the mess who's responsible for causing that mess. So he had a point to prove. He really had a point to prove that he was not Wall Street's guy. He'd made reportedly $62 million in a division of Goldman Sachs, which specialized in helping corporations avoid tax and therefore, arguably, denuding the US taxpayer of tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions. Anyway, he made a lot of money in that. So the progressives were really uncomfortable and they only unblocked his appointment after they were promised that the derivatives, the trading derivatives would be regulated. So he's since then, after making a big noise about LIBOR, been seen as a progressive hero, someone who was willing to go after Wall Street, even though he was brought up on Wall Street almost. Yeah, like a turncoat. Oh, he's one of the good ones, you know. Yeah, he was seen as it like like yeah exactly like a Damascene conversion. St. Paul, I'm going to go after, I'm going to go after these people rather than rather than um, pander to Wall Street. But what we know is that he heard, for example, that phone call, and that was what led to him actually launching passing it on to the DOJ. That was what led to Americans launching criminal prosecutions, which turned out to be misconceived. But even though that was what led to it, this evidence pointing to the Bank of England and the UK government. That call was suppressed. It was suppressed throughout the trials, throughout everything that the CFTC said to Congress about this. It never said anything about that tape. It covered up the evidence pointing to the British government. So when you refer to the call, are you talking about the Peter Johnson call? Yeah, the DLF Johnson call, which which I sent you, you should be able to yeah. play that out. And, and, and that basically says, PJ, you're gonna absolutely hate this. This is DLF saying to Peter Johnson, PJ, you're going to absolutely hate this, but we've had some very serious pressure from the Bank of England and the UK government about pushing our LIBORs lower. And Peter Johnson replies, can I have the prices from them? Because he's making the point. They want, to, they want to tell me to push it down. Right, okay, so it's not a market rate anyway. Can, can they give me the prices? Because, you know, normally I set this off the market. Yeah. You know, and he's really upset about it. And the real scandal is Peter Johnson was the whistleblower. Peter Johnson, it was, who was trying to alert the authorities to it. And Peter Johnson was prosecuted for this other thing, the trader requests, which the US courts now say was not a crime at all. Yeah, that so is that one of the most messed up things about the story is that the, the banks had an incentive to lie because it's a crisis. And, you know, if they are honest, then the Wall Street Journal is, is reporting about how, hmm, are they, is this having issues? You know, the spreads <laughs> are blowing out. And uh, the you know people at the, the top of, uh, of central banks and all the authorities, they want to contain this crisis and they are putting pressure. So the only thing that is supporting the truth is Peter Johnson's integrity and he ends up being prosecuted. Yeah, so he's the only one in 2007 who cares whether libel is true or false. He's the only one who cares whether it's fraudulent or one of very few. And he, he protests and tries to post more truth or keeps on being told by his bosses to post to lie. And then he, rather than thanking him, the authorities ignore him. And then they require more lowballing. And then when it comes to be prosecuted later by the US authorities, they're able to escape culpability for anyone at the top and dump the blame on the whistleblowers, including Peter Johnson and another guy who alerted the ECB and the Fed called Colin Birmingham. Um, they were both prosecuted for this small stuff, which was just commercial. Um, and now the US courts don't think it was wrong at all. Um, and and no one has, there's been no accountability. There's been no scrutiny and, and Congress has been kept in the dark as well as Parliament about the true extent of government and central bank involvement in manipulating interest rates throughout nine criminal trials. That's why I say it was it's, it's the, the, the 
the biggest story I've come across, the most shocking story I've come across. The authorities all have their own things to say about this. The central banks say, no, we didn't ask them to do anything illegal. But as I say, I can agree with that. Nothing was illegal at the time. The law was created much later. But if you're going to retrospectively punish one thing, punish the thing that did the harm rather than the thing that didn't, and apply the law universally and equally to people at the top as well as the people at the bottom, it shouldn't be that whether you get prosecuted or not depends on who you are. Yeah, what, what is the official narrative, the official line from the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, when, when Gary Gensler, SEC, when, they, when, when asked about this? Well, I've, I've gone to Gary Gensler a number of times, including a detailed letter of more than 20 pages, which I sent to the SEC ahead of publishing the book. There was no response. Um, I also went to him ahead of the radio series, The Lowball Tapes, and again, there was no response. So we don't have an official line from them. Um, the CFTC have said that they prosecuted LIBOR conscientiously. This is paraphrasing them. And um, also the Bank of England have said that there was no regulation at the time. Now, that's particularly interesting because Central Bank now wants to point out that back then there were no rules. And so therefore, people shouldn't get cross with the Bank of England. The traders would say, well, fine, you're right. There were no rules. Why do you prosecute us? That's what they've been saying. And now a lot of MPs have taken up the cause for the traders, even though they're inherently unsympathetic. You know, these are a bunch of overpaid traders. They're not a bunch of, you know, normal people from the street, I suppose you could say. But in a way, they are normal, just like the rest of us. If, if, and if you get prosecuted, it doesn't matter who you are. It kind of ruins your life. You know, it ruins your social life. It ruins your career. You know, it, it, it can ruin your personal life. It can... A lot of these people have had nervous breakdowns. And in Parliament, we had a session where some of the traders came in and I asked them to speak about their experiences. Mm. I really hadn't expected it. At the end, um, there were standing ovations and not a dry eye in the house because wow. these, these were a bunch of guys in their 50s and 60s, or something, 40s, 50s, 60s, who'd gone through hell and, and had never, you know, had been vilified in the media and elsewhere and as far as they're concerned were just doing their jobs and this was the first time that anybody had actually suggested that they might have been mistreated um yeah. but but unfortunately the way things work in in our society between the regulators and the prosecutors and the bank's lawyers it means that you don't have much chance if they pick you to be thrown under the bus Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. 
So tell us about the, the prosecutions and as well as so that distinction between uh, commercial f- requests and lowballing, you know, commercial requests, yeah. one or two, three basis points, and it's all on different sides of the trade by bank and lowballing. Every bank is 10 basis points, 15. I mean, in some cases, yeah. the, the rate for one bank for one, you know, one day was 27% and they were reporting LIBOR of 5%. That's an extreme, extreme example. So, so did any people who were go to go to jail for lowballing, even if they were the Peter Johnson's, the actual cash traders, and, and not the uh, people at the top? The, no, no, lowballing never came to court. Um, the prosecutors knew about it from 2010, and they had evidence that it pointed to the top from April 2010. They never prosecuted that evidence. There was an attempt by the U.S. authorities at one point to go after two employees of Societe Generale in France for lowballing outside the crisis, but that never came to anything and they never prosecuted it. And the Serious Fraud Office sort of made a token attempt to go after the people who'd instructed Peter Johnson to lowball in 2019, but that that never really came to anything either. They never brought it to trial. I suppose the prosecutors would argue, well, we tried, but the evidence of lowballing is much stronger, more powerful, and it's much clearer, more clear that it's a fraud. And then that's really about the numbers. So you think about these LIBOR estimates, 3.54%, 3.55%. That was the sort of difference that you had before the crisis. And the traders were asking for one big, one hundredth of a percentage point up or down within the range where cash was trading. If it was outside that range, the cash traders would turn around to them and say, sorry, can't do that. I'd be lying. So they argue that it's never been proved that anybody put in anything false. Whereas with lowballing, it's very, very clear you are putting in a rate saying we can borrow at 3.2% when actually you'd have to pay 3.6 or in the crisis, 4.6. Yeah. You know, it was that far out and it was properly fraudulent. And that's, and been I think a- that's yeah, as you say, that, that is unquestionable. I mean, there are people on tape saying, so you want me to report a rate that's not honest? Yes, that's exactly. Exactly. You want me to report a rate that's, that's, that's going to be breaking the rules. There were emails written. People were trying to cover themselves because they knew they'd be breaking the rules. You're, you're instructing me to break the rules and I will be doing this because I need to keep my job, but is management telling me to do it? Those emails were also known to regulators and they, they're, they're set out in the book. And yet parliament was never shown them and Congress was never shown them. Is that the sort of thing that parliament or Congress is happy to let lie? The parliamentarians in the UK have certainly said they shouldn't, that it shouldn't be the case. And I think there will probably be American politicians, too, who would say, look, it can't be that this is a long time ago. Yes, but this is important historic facts about what went on in the crisis and interest rates, something really, really key to understanding how we're going to deal with future crises. A lot of the same things are happening now. Interest rates looking a bit wobbly, markets struggling, undisclosed losses, all those fixed rate loans Mm -hmm. or paper losses on those that haven't been crystallized. It's not too dissimilar to 2007. We can't learn the lessons of the past unless we know the truth about it. Yes, although now we have you know secured overnight financing rates, and uh, I mean at least it, it doesn't have that credit rate component, so there's no incentive for there to be such a widespread. Maybe, maybe I'm just being naive. Well, um, with LIBOR, after the scandal blew up in the UK in 2012, and they started finding banks and prosecuting them, so they're very much an anti-bank mood. There was a review commission to see whether they get rid of LIBOR in the UK. And the guy who later became the regulator, a guy called Martin Wheatley, went away for months, looked at it, said, it has problems, has issues, but we can reform them. We should keep it. But then in 2017, um, I did a panorama for BBC, which exposed the evidence pointing to the top, to the, to the Bank of England and the UK government. A few months after that, 
a senior guy at the Bank of England gave a speech calling for the ending of LIBOR and the Fed started making similar noises. I think there was a committee um, which was set up to the Alternative Rates Committee, I think it was called, or something along those lines, and, and sat for months to try to work out how you could have something like LIBOR that wasn't LIBOR. But the problem was what they came out with so far is supposedly more reliable because it's based on transactions. But what it doesn't do is indicate how the market's feeling about the credit quality of its counterparties. So because the central banks had lost control of interest rates, that was precisely because the market was worried. Now, if the market's worried, you don't have an indicator that's going to say, look, they're worried about their counterparties. They're worried they might not get their money back. SOFA doesn't reflect assessments of the credit quality of counterparties. But so isn't that because there's basically no credit risk because it's it's a repurchase of, I'm going to, uh, you know, the, re the mechanics of repurchase repo always confuse me, but... If uh, I'm going, if you know, if I'm going to jack lend to you, Andy, as a bank, I'm mm -hmm. going to buy your treasury, your safe collateral at 98 cents, and yeah. then uh, uh, buy it, and then sell it, sell it back to you, and and that's my way of uh, giving you an overnight loan. And you know, oh, so treasury rates are moving a ton because the Federal Reserve is doing this. Okay, maybe I'll haircut it to 95 cents. I mean, that's very conservative for one one day, obviously. Yes, yes it's secured rather than it's unsecured. Secured. Yeah. And you know, uh, so I, in, back in the back in the day, banks uh, funded themselves on repo based on very speculative, you know, CDOs, asset-backed commercial paper, and then LIBOR was you know unsecured, so it was not secured by anything. So it, I mean, that seems very uh, uh, seems seems very risky to me. How could you be worried about? Uh, doing a a because even if you're even if you're doing a repo transaction with an insolvent party, you still have the treasury. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, anyway, you're kind of underlining my point, which is that SOFA doesn't reflect any concerns that there might or might not be yeah, about yeah, yeah. the quality of your counterparties. It's as you say, it's it's to do with secured finding. You can argue though that was a virtue, not a vice of LIBOR, and it worked really well. Don't forget, it worked really well right up until a couple of years ago. It, it was it was it was still doing its job. They had to keep all the legacy loans that have been linked to LIBOR. Nothing went wrong with those loans, really. There wasn't a problem with that. Was the problem with LIBOR really that it was telling lies? It was in the crisis, yeah, but it wasn't before then. There was no problem at all with it before then. Or was the problem that actually central banks couldn't control it in the crisis and they didn't want that ever to happen again? So you get a central bank kind of pushback. Let's get rid of this, even though it's a bureaucratic nightmare to get rid of. Um, between 2017 and 2022, and they eventually get rid of it. But now the Fed itself has written papers admitting that it's a problem, that we don't have an indicator of, of credit quality, because we need some kind of canary in the coal mine. If we're going to have another credit crunch, it's, st it's still going to be happening. It's just you won't have any numbers showing you how it's happening. Is that an improvement? Or is it just... So, so to some extent, there's a concern that central banks have wanted to reassert their control over interest rates. Mm -hmm. That's their power. But what they've actually done is they've created something they can control, which doesn't really reflect the market. Right. Well, but uh, well, credit quality concerns of the market is what I'm saying. Right. And I guess a lot of the, but isn't isn't that better that banks fund themselves in a less risky way? Um, what if what if a bank had hidden losses? You know, what if all the banks have hidden losses on, say, fixed term products that we don't know about yet? And the market starts ferreting out this information. It's part of the normal functioning of the market. You try to get the, mark, the information and then try to assess the credit quality of the bank. 
Um, if you do see no evil, we don't want to know about this bank's losses. We don't want to know about their credit quality. We'll, we'll ignore any indicators that are going to tell us about that. Then the risk is that it sort of creeps up on you and, and, and then you're sort of overwhelmed by it, I guess. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on credit measures or even indices, but there are concerns which have been voiced even by the Fed that if you that the, the replacement that SOFA isn't doing the same job LIBOR did in terms of indicating where there may be a general credit quality issue as there was in 2007. Yes. I don't know. But do you think, though, that, I mean, the scandal of LIBOR, and I mean, it was just a, all a big lie in 2007, 2008, was so big that there, there, was a, there was a need to move to something new. I suppose the only time it really didn't work, it wasn't designed to work when there was no cash changing hands. You know, you're making a, a rate which is supposed to gauge cash changing hands, and there's only cash isn't changing hands. It's, as you say, it's like trying to measure the cost of no apples. No, it's, yeah. it's as you say in your book. It's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do you measure the price of something that's not changing hands at all? It was never really set up to do that. And before the credit crunch, it didn't really happen much. So it worked quite well up until then. Um, you've just got to be careful what you wish for. If you want to replace it with, with something that's not going to get out of central bank control, but then you might lose any indicator you might have if the banks have all got themselves into trouble. Mind you, we spent the last 15 years since the crisis shoring up the bank's finances effectively, arguably at the cost of the rest of the economy. So actually, that may not be the weak point next time around. Right. All right. So now let's move on to the, the middle and end of your book about the, the prosecutions and uh, just the, the procedures, because, you know, yes. most of the book is not about 2007, 2008. It's about what happens you know, in the decade after. Yes, that's right. So 2007, 2008, you have lowballing the crisis. Then the CFTC comes along, Gary Gensler and co say, can you please review LIBOR? Because they've heard about how LIBOR was false. 2010, this tape bubbles up, the key tape, the crucial tape, um, showing, indicating that there were orders from the top to rig LIBOR. That energizes the US authorities. They order criminal prosecutions. And then the book traces through the timeline since then. 2012, the regulators bring their fines down on Barclays. That triggers an explosion of fury in the UK against the banks. And then there are further fines. And for political reasons, rather than arguably rather than evidential ones, the authorities then start going after finding banks a lot more, and this includes the European Union, etc., for what is arguably only commercial practice rather than anything criminal. And that goes on for the next um, sort of six, seven years. You've got a huge fine, for example, for Deutsche Bank. It goes through all that. And you, what you hear is all the trials and all the personal stories of the traders. And you hear their conversations and you hear about exchanges in the trials, including that of an American, Matt Connolly, his trial, which is set out in a chapter called The Price of Honesty. And I've called it that, sorry, The Price of Dishonesty, I've called it that because there's um, uh, evidence that came out in that trial, not only that the Department of Justice put in false statements for use by the court and, in, and encouraged a government witness to make false statements. That was said by a judge at the time. Um, but it also um, did a deal behind the judge's back to allow one of the cooperating witnesses to keep $9 million that he otherwise would not have kept. And Matt Connolly, who's the guy who was eventually acquitted in that trial, argues that the DOJ has so much power, is really more powerful than the judges. He's written his own book about it called Target, what it's like to be a scapegoat in the federal justice system. And he, he sets out in that and in my book 
both how how the game seems loaded for the prosecutors that if you're innocent and you're faced with this you don't have much chance um and it's only by dint of him making a huge stink about it and and evidence coming out in the press like the stuff in my book that the u.s authorities i mean actually the judge in his trial said look we've got to think about who's not at this trial we've got to think about the other senior bankers who are not in this trial there's evidence that the bank of england was involved in this says the judge so clearly the judge saw and she came out with this great quote i'm always reluctant when i'm asked and it usually happens in the drugs context to sentence the low guys on the totem pole while the top guys go free and in a way that she there in that quote she sums up the essence from the traders point of view of what they think has gone wrong namely that that it's that they're four guys they're scapegoats and they're they're they're, they're the victims of, of a campaign of manipulation now the authorities obviously wouldn't agree with that but that's maybe why there's got to be more hearings for the authorities to give their views and for politicians to question them on those. I think the standard of proof that you as a journalist have uh, is very high. And I, I mean, I find it uh, very convincing that you know, folks at the very top of, of, of central banks, and I mean, in some cases, the government, uh, the prime minister, uh, were, you know, had, had their hands in this affair. But, you know, as you know, the uh, the justice system has a much, I mean, there's things that you and I would agree to be true uh, about so and so person did this that you know we can have a 98% confidence uh, in it. But you know, a judge would not sentence that person to jail unless they have you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a sh- shadowable doubt. So um, you know that that very very high bar could is it arguable to say that the judge, you know, the uh, high journalistic standard and and you know what we in our everyday life agree upon as fact. Hmm. Uh, uh, would argue, okay, yes, they had their hands in this affair, but it was impossible to prove uh, in a legalistic way, in the same way that, okay, yes, the, the guys on the street who were selling drugs, it's very easy to get them, uh, you know, very easy to convict them. It's much higher, harder to get the bosses, uh, you know, th- and that's just an unfortunate way, uh, um, you know, the ju- justice, justice system works. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the evidence trail, the, the evidence of lowballing and the evidence that it was ordered from the top is really powerful. It was just never pursued. And, you know, prosecutors and regulators have a duty to, you know, to pursue all relevant leads. Um, So I think it's not quite, I think the analogy starts to break down about, you know, the boss of the drug kingpin who who keeps himself clear of things. I don't think the central bankers even tried to keep themselves clear of things. I didn't think they thought they were doing anything wrong. And one central banker explained to me, and, and it's fair to give them credit for that. As I say, it's the fact that the law has been made retrospectively Arguably, the law is completely misconceived, and it shouldn't have have condemned this. But if there was a fraud resulting, perhaps inadvertently, unintentionally, from crisis measures, then it was lowballing, not the traders' requests. Mm. And I, I think the traders would say, look, okay, fair enough. And Tom Hayes, who went to jail, has said this. Look, I don't have any problem with the sentiment that the people in the crisis were innocent people doing a very difficult job, an almost impossible job, in the middle of the worst financial crisis in 80 years. And that's the, the defense. And he accepts that point. But he says, but then in that case, don't make one rule for them and another rule for me. You know, it's it's what 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 was the central banks were doing was 100 times bigger or more than anything I could have hoped to move LIBOR by. Um, and there's no proof anyway that he did. 
So it's it's a, it's the question of a double standard and universal standards of, of application of the law. I don't really wish to condemn people in the government who are trying to manage a crisis or people in central banks. Um, but I think if a law is going to be created by the courts, they need to make sure it's of universal application or it shouldn't apply. You know, and, and what the courts in the US have decided is that it doesn't apply. Um, and therefore, I think they probably say that what the Fed did was fair, fair enough as well. But we still have this situation in the UK where a bunch of people have been prosecuted. Americans too, French people, British people, all being prosecuted on the basis of something which is only now a crime in the UK and which the courts now have their doubts about. So I, I was going to bring that up. So uh, the, the argument that uh, the, the central banks in power, they said, OK, I, I mean, it is, you know, we're manipulating LIBOR, and it, we are turning it to a lie, but it is necessary in order to prevent a Great Depression. I mean, if you, if you believe that, I would imagine uh, you, you'd, you'd stop at nothing. Yeah, I mean, I tried lots of times to get hold of the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Paul Tucker, hoping that he might make precisely those points. You know, say, look, okay, yeah, we did ask Barclays to lower their LIBOR, we did ask all the other banks. Maybe even Gordon Brown, who led a lot of the bailout efforts, would take this view too. I don't know. He's never granted me an interview, so I couldn't say. I put all these questions to him. Maybe he'd also say, look, we did ask for LIBOR to be lower. Maybe he'd say we didn't think it was false. We had no idea. No one told us. We just wanted to try to manage the crisis. But you never have that open, honest conversation with either Parliament or Congress, because instead the authorities, the CFTC, Gary Gensler, the DOJ, the Serious Fraud Office, and the Financial Services Authority have all fined banks billions and sat on all this evidence pointing to the top. And that's what I think as a Democrat, they should be telling the truth about what happened there for the sake of accurate history. A small D Democrat. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean a big D Democrat. I'm not being partisan here. I just mean yeah. we all live in a democracy. We, we deserve to know the truth about what happened in our crisis, in, in the financial crisis. Could you provide uh, uh, more detail on Gary Gensler's role uh, in, uh, co I mean, covering this up. When you say he, co he covered it up, uh, is, there, is there evidence other than him not pursuing the, uh, the people who uh, um, you know, kind of orchestrated it? Uh, yeah. what, it, it can you, what, what's kind of the paper trail there? Well, we know that he heard the tape. Um, the evidence for that is not only in my book, it's in another book called The Fix by two journalists who interviewed the CFTC directly, Liam Vaughan and Gavin Finch. Um, and in that, they relate this call and how the call came to the CFTC, the Dear Love PJ call, where he's told to lower his libels on instructions from above. And I've also spoken to someone, I, I, did, I can't give his name, but someone high up in the DOJ investigation who confirmed that the criminal investigation was started because of that tape that Gary Gensler heard. So Is Gary that someone who, who you uh, thank and attribute in the introduction? No, that person isn't thanked in, in the introduction to the book, but it's an insider who knows all about it. Let me just yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah. So I have evidence both from public sources and non-public sources, and also audio recordings and documents, which are all set out in the timeline that I've published. You can read them and listen to them for yourself, which indicate that Gary Gensler knew about this tape and that the tape was used as the basis for criminal prosecution. He also refers to it, it's in his Wikipedia entry, he refers to how he heard a call, which sounds a lot like the Dear Love PJ call, between two Barclays employees agreeing to lie. So that all matches with the timeline of the CFTC finding out about it and the tape going to him, as related in the fix and in the 
non-published accounts that I've heard. And I've also written to him, and there's never been a denial that he knew about that tape. So I think it's fairly solid, although obviously it'd be nice to have it. Did you or did you not hear that tape? And it's not just that tape, it's all the other evidence that would have come to the CFTC. Thousands of pages of documents which indicate involvement, well, indicate involvement from of the boards of banks and lots of evidence worth pursuing further, which points to involvement of central banks and governments. Was there a time where he wanted to pursue it at a higher level uh, of, of the Bank of England, but he was shut down? In the fines that the CFTC made for Barclays and the DOJ and the Financial Services Authority made for Barclays in June 2012, um, they have some paragraphs which indicate that there were, there were instructions coming from above, but they're very elliptical about where they were coming from. And when you match that up with the evidence in the timeline, and it's set out in the book here, you can see that that's very clearly referring to instructions from the top. So it was kept very vague in the Barclays notice about whether it's coming from the board. And this unfortunately indicates how these things are negotiated. Whenever you hear a settlement of a bank paying a fine, beware that that's the outcome of months of negotiation, where lawyers for the bank have sat down with lawyers for the prosecutors, and the bank's done their best to make sure there's nothing pointing to the top. Because if there is, it can mean corporate civil liability. You can get your ass sued off in the States if, if, if you've got evidence that a controlling mind knew about something that the regulators have said was a fraud. So Barclays was able to negotiate in such a way that there isn't any clear evidence in the fines for it pointing to the boardroom. But the audio evidence I've got hold of does point to the boardroom, suggesting that the authorities agreed in those negotiations to, to cover it up. And also the evidence that pointed to the Bank of England and the government, it wasn't identified in those press releases as the Bank of England and the government. I've had to match that up subsequently. Sounds like he, he heard, a, he was presented with a lot of the uh, evidence that you point in the book. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I know that Gensler was presented with a key tape. Mm -hmm. um, and I also know that the CFTC had lots of this evidence. How much of that he paid attention to would be for somebody else to prove. But he, he knew about the key piece of evidence, really strong evidence, indicating involvement from the Bank of England and the UK government. And he would have known because it came out in public in 2012, and the CFTC was watching very closely, um, that the Bank of England had been involved. So therefore, he had two matching pieces of evidence, one from 2012, Bob Diamond conversation with Paul Tucker, saying, we, Whitehall wants you to get your libels down. And a, a, from the same day, a piece of audio dug up separately. And he also had the evidence of Mark Dearlove, who the DOJ investigated, who made it clear that there'd been another instruction from the Bank of England earlier that month. And there are other bits and bobs of evidence which are laid out in the book, which the CFTC will have had. The CFTC was also present at interviews with Peter Johnson, where he laid out to them about this tape and explained the tape and the context of it and explained about the instructions coming from the top. In the book, there's a transcript of an interview led by the FBI where that lays all out. And, and there was a CFTC member there. I'd be really surprised, wouldn't you, if a CFTC person had turned up to an interview with someone who'd received an instruction from the UK government to falsely manipulate LIBOR, and that wasn't relayed back to the boss. I, I generally have the view that like, if I know something, I think the people who are at the top don't tell it, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. And that's actually how it works. But this fiction was created for the sake of prosecuting LIBOR. But banks are very hierarchical institutions and lawyers know everything. You wouldn't dare to do anything remotely controversial without checking with the lawyers. And yet the lawyers are never in the dock. 
and neither are the directors of the bank. Right. I, I guess in the same way, you know, if the president of the U.S. or, or prime minister does something uh, in their capacity as a national leader and politician or a member of Congress, member of parliament does something and it's wrong, but it is not to benefit themselves. It is their, you know, uh, let's do this, let's do that. You could say, oh, well, they are acting in their official capacity. You know, in other words, it's impossible to send the president to jail for, for doing something, something like that in their official capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I suppose you you could say like, you, how can you send the Federal Reserve to jail? How can you send the Bank of England? To, you know, they basically set set the rules. But th- but that goes into a, a you know can of worms of oh, person A should is in jail when actually person B and C should be in jail. And, and you know let I, we you know there's not a lot of uh, profit you know intellectual uh, stuff to be gained by by playing that game. I think what's important is that just that you are sharing the story and finally revealing many yeah. years later what actually happened. That's well, that's right, Jack. And I mean, if you're asking who should really be prosecuted, should should people just get away with it? Should there be no prosecutions? I don't know. Probably not. You know, probably not. There probably should be some prosecutions over the fraud. Who they'd be, I don't know. But we certainly have some strong evidence pointing to Baldrum involvement. Um, and the regulators had that. And that evidence... Baldrum involvement <laughs> meaning of the banks. Baldrum involvement of the banks in lowballing. And no, no board member has ever been prosecuted of any of the banks who've been fined. Um, and in the notices, the published notices that were given, for example, about Barclays, they, it was cleverly avoided implicating the boardroom. So I suppose if there, were, if there is a crime to be prosecuted, it's lowballing. And then you decide, well, given the circumstances of the time, are there mitigating circumstances that say, well, this person shouldn't be prosecuted? Could Barclays say, well, you can't prosecute us. We were told to do this by the Bank of England, which they might have been inclined to say. Then it gets very complicated. And yes. People have to do difficult things in crises. People have to order military strikes. Bad things happen. There's a reason that you have presidential immunity as well. So, you know, I mean, I'm not arguing for all those things to be overturned. But if there is a wrong, prosecute the big wrong that harms people, rather than creating what is arguably a confected wrong in order to deflect the blame for the real scandal away from the top and onto to traders below. That's what they would argue has happened. So where, where do we stand now in, in 2023, 2024? 2024. Well, we have the Court of Appeal coming up in the UK. Um, the, in early 22, the US courts decided that the people who've been prosecuted stateside for this should all be acquitted and that the case against them didn't show that they'd broken any rules or any laws. That partially led the Criminal Cases Review Commission in the UK to refer back the case of Tom Hayes, which it had initially said shouldn't be referred back. But it saw what happened in the States where they said there were no false statements that the traders made. And so they've referred it back on that basis. In March, we'll have a crucial court of appeal hearing where two people in the book, Tom Hayes, an Asperger's sufferer, a bit of a rain man, if you like, some people have said, somebody who is easy to prosecute, arguably, Mm. um, who's defended his case. He's been convicted by a jury, but he's always maintained his innocence. Another person convicted by a jury, Carlo Palumbo, convicted for rigging Eurobor, is joining the same case. And in March, the Court of Appeal here will decide whether or not to overturn their convictions. If not, they'll probably go to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, you've got politicians saying there should be a public inquiry where we can find out about what really happened in the lowballing during the crisis um, and hold people accountable. Not necessarily criminally accountable, but somebody perhaps should answer as to why this has been kept from Parliament and Congress. 
And so when people talk about the TED spread, the, the spread between treasury rates, risk-free rates, and the euro dollar LIBOR rate, what we've been talking about, um, yes. and how that widened in 2007, then it really blew out in 2008. And that highlights stress, of course, that no longer exists because you know we don't have the euro dollar uh, futures market anymore. Um, it's now it's now SOFR futures. Basically, from from you know reading your book and what you said, it's it's uh, we can gather that the real rate, if it was if everyone was completely honest, would have been you know the the real chart of the TED spread would have been much much wider. Yes, I mean there was a good analogy given by Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England at the time of the crisis, who came under a lot of criticism. Actually, he gave though a helpful analogy when he was in front of Parliament, which is that LIBOR in a way is a measure of the temperature of the anxiety in the money markets. Um, The higher it goes, the higher the TED spread is, the higher it goes beyond the risk-free rate, the more worried the market is. And they were using that as a barometer or a thermometer of of the temperature of the patient, the economic patient in the credit crunch. But there's a question whether you give the patient some drugs like TARP to get its temperature down or whether you tamper with a thermometer. And the evidence in this book suggests that maybe the thermometer was tampered with. So lowballing suited the central banks in a way because it understated the dislocation in the markets. It understated how worried the markets were because of the credit crunch about lending to each other. Um, and therefore, it looked like there were less, interest rates were less out of control than they really were. Um, but, you know, really, let's stop treating symptoms, whether it's LIBOR or SOFA or whatever, let's start treating the underlying cause. Why did you have a credit crunch in the first place? Why now are there so many vulnerabilities in the financial system? Arguably because policy has just not been very good at controlling. Regulators and the central banks have not been that good at watching those risks blow up until it's too late. You know, and that's when you get a credit crunch. Someone should have been saying early in the noughties, guys, you're lending too much to people who aren't going to be able to pay you back. Arguably, someone should have been saying a few years ago, can you be careful how much you're putting into U.S. Treasuries? Because mm-hmm. it's looking a bit bubblish, you know, um, and the, the regulators and central banks haven't been very good at managing those risks, it can be argued. So therefore, you need to get the temperatures, the patient's temperature down early enough or even maybe give him a pro- few prophylactic pills before he gets into sickness. Um, rather than trying to tamper with a thermometer or remove the thermometer. I mean, in a way, SOFA is like replacing LIBOR with a thermometer that doesn't move. You know, it, it's it's not going to tell you if you've got another credit crunch coming. And arguably, is as manipulable. If they were honest, the TED spread would have been way wider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's clear, it's clear from the evidence that I set out in my book that that if there had been no lowballing, that the TED spread, the measure of risk that everybody looked to in the markets at the time, would have been way wider it would have been much more alarming so to some extent lowballing suited the central banks and governments trying to manage the crisis and that's why they encouraged more lowballing not less honesty here in the markets was a casualty firstly of the crisis and then of the attempt to manage it and so i libor died a slow death i know you know it was first announced that it would be replaced by sofa and it was it was very very slow and, and a gradual process uh can you just dis- uh, uh, catalog the the slow death of LIBOR, where you know first the the cash market was reduced, and then the futures. I mean, I think it is. Is it fair to say the LIBOR is now fully dead? The euro dollars are fully dead. Not fully, because they still have proxies for it, don't they? For certain contracts and certain legacy loans that where where they still have to have a 
they sort of call it a zombie LIBOR, don't they, where they've had to sort of maintain that. But LIBOR as a transaction rate, as the main measure of the cost of borrowing dollars, for example, yes, it's dead like that. LIBOR as the main measure of the cost of borrowing dollars is dead. It's not, it's been killed by the central banks. Um, they were very keen to get rid of LIBOR. And the interesting question is whether it was because LIBOR really did a bad job at estimating the cost of borrowing cash, or was it really because central banks didn't want a rate that was going to make it very clear when they lost control of interest rates? Mm -hmm. And in the supposed golden age of LIBOR, you know, 2006 and before, when the stated LIBOR matched the actual rates, was that because bankers uh, you know, just were, were honest and that's the way the system worked? Or was there a verification system that ensured they were honest and then that verification system lapsed in 27, 2007 and 2008? Well, it's funny, the verification system, right early on, what they used to do is have a system where if somebody quoted too low, they everybody would gang up and make them come clean on that quote. And then it would become really obvious if they were lying because they didn't actually want the business. you know. Um, so that was one way to, to make it. And some people suggested that's how it should work, that some people should be made to cough up at the rate they quote. But for various reasons, that, that wasn't practical. Um, it relied on a self-regulating system where if somebody was looking at the market and saying, look, here's where the offers are coming in. I'm being offered 3.57, 3.56. Hang on, that bloke from Lloyd's is saying he can get it at 3.4. That's rubbish. If I can't get it there, he can't get it there. And they call up the British Bankers Association and say, can you put a word in? And a word would be put in, in a very sort of old fashioned London, sort of city of London way. Well, I'm not sure about that. Could you have another look at your LIBOR? And sometimes they correct it within the same day. So it's done in this sort of informal way. But it didn't really create any market distortions. I think the real difference is liquidity. So before the credit crunch happened, they would have very closely bunched together submissions. You know, there wouldn't be more than one or two basis points apart, three max. Um, and then after the credit crunch came, they're all over the place, you know, 10, 20 points apart from each other. Um, you had what you call dispersion. And that was because there was no liquidity. If you have enough liquidity, it becomes more obvious where the price is. And that's true of most commodity markets, isn't it? You don't need a very tight regulation because the market will sort itself out if there's enough cash running around, if there's enough assets changing hands. Um, whereas, I, So I think LIBOR was pretty accurate before the credit crunch for 20 years, but it wasn't really designed for a time where no one would be lending. Mm -hmm. Has the fall of LIBOR, you know, the L in the name London, affected the the London uh, banking scene and the UK financial economy uh, uh, as well as, I mean, it coincided with Brexit, which was you know, maybe bigger, <laughs> but, um, you know, the fact that the world is no longer using the London rate, um, maybe, you know, has some psychological symbolic uh, uh, import, but in terms of, are, are, you know, has... Uh, the London, the city, the city, the importance of the city, has that diminished because LIBOR is, is no longer a thing? Well, if you look at trading volumes, it hasn't had a particularly noticeable effect. The city seems to be able to maintain its business in spite of Brexit, in spite of things like the end of LIBOR as a, as a current rate. Yeah, I, I think that there is the city keeps prospering and thriving. And this is really interesting with the City of London. Part of the background to all this is that it was the Wall Street Journal saying LIBOR was false. And it was American regulators saying it was wrong, going after American and British traders and French traders, Algerian, etc. Um, 
but it's part of this tension between Wall Street and London that there's always been. Why should it be that the main measure of the cost of borrowing dollars is a London rate? You know, the old enemy and all those kind of things you're taught in school. Um, it's 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 um, always been the case that London has, well, since the 1950s, it's been the case that London has thrived off the euro dollar market. Mm. Um, the market, petrodollars, dollars from Russia, from their sales of gas after the discovery of gas in the 60s and 70s, they all found homes in London where they'd face lighter scrutiny than they would if they went to New York. Then you, you had the Suez crisis in 1956, which led the city for various reasons to do with rules and arbitrary and sorry, regulatory arbitrage effectively created the offshore system, the system where you're anonymous, you don't have a London address, you have a, an address somewhere in Belize or the Cayman Islands. All that stuff started really as an attempt for the city of London to keep attracting dollars um, in spite of you know, the fact that Americans would like to control the market. So there's always been that tension. How come all those dollars are in London? How come the cost of borrowing dollars is, seems to be determined in London? We're suspicious of this rate from the start. So I think that that politics has, has been operative here. But um, unfortunately, the abolition hasn't done anything to, to diminish London's business. And when I say unfortunately, a lot of people would say it's a star of the British economy and it, it creates a lot of business and, and, uh, and a lot of tax revenues. And, but, but there's a valid American question to the British system to, from Wall Street to the city of London. Are you attracting so many dollars because your regime is too light? Is it actually, are you actually prospering off the back of the fact that you're making things easier for sanctioned oligarchs, for, you know, all kinds of shady operators to bring their money to London anonymously and trade anonymously? Mm -hmm. um, what, what are some broad-based conclusions you think we can draw from, from your work? In my epilogue, I'm sort of pointing to, to the book, I'm, I'm pointing to the fact that we think we're more rational in our justice system than we were in the past. We think it's not infected by politics. We think it's about evidence in the law. But actually what the whole episode shows is how much the justice system and what happens in the justice system has to do with politics. And in this case, the poisonous politics of Main Street getting angry with Wall Street, of the British public getting angry with the city of London. Those, the anger that was generated by the financial crisis um, was deflected in the trials of traders down onto the traders and they were the ones who paid the price they would say that they had scapegoats others would deny that but that's that would be their argument that they were scapegoats for the anger of the public towards bankers and i think that the lesson to be drawn there is just that the there's a reason we talk about the need for the judiciary to be independent judges shouldn't be thinking about um what outcome they want to appease public anger, you know, and that they should be just looking at the law and the evidence and whether it makes sense. And the American courts, the traders would argue, finally did that in 2022. And they want the British courts to do the same. What still concerns me when I reflect on this is the practice of scapegoating. So this has become, according to some lawyers, a sort of a cleaning service that every legal firm is expected to offer to any bank. But if they get in trouble with the regulators, they can pay a fine, the shareholders will pay it, and then the lawyers will cooperate with the prosecuting agencies and the regulators, and they'll come to a settlement and it will make it go away for the senior executives. It will make it go away for the senior lawyers. 
but at a price, not just of the shareholders paying fines, but also of the liberty of some of their employees who will be scapegoated. The prosecutors want some real live individuals to be prosecuted. And that's how this has all happened. The prosecutors have outsourced their investigations as the American courts have ruled to the bank's lawyers. Obviously, if you ask a burglar to bust for fingerprints, they're not gonna say, yeah, it was me that did it. No, they're gonna say, it's that guy over there. Look, the one carrying the sack, which I just planted on him. The, the, the evidence is handed to the prosecutors and the regulators by the bank's lawyers. And uh, there's an effective backdoor privatization of the investigation and the prosecution of these things. I mean, in the case of Matt Connolly, New Jersey dad, who was later acquitted, it was found that um, Paul Weiss, the, the American law firm, who'd been effectively investigating it for the DOJ, and they'd had thousands of phone calls where they'd been deciding who would get prosecuted. And they made their case for a discount. And in this document where they're making their case to have a discounted fine, they say, um, well, here's why you should discount our fine. We did all this for you. Thousands of phone calls, thousands of meetings, and we gave you the evidence to prosecute people. And we even pointed you to the right documents. So please give us a discount. And I just think, for me, I don't think things should happen like that. I don't think people's liberty should be a pawn of a game between the prosecutors and the regulators and the banks. And justice needs to be universal. That's a fundamental democratic principle. I'm not saying anything controversial with that. What, what the trials make clear is that whether you get prosecuted or not can depend not so much on what you've done as how senior you are, where you stand in the hierarchy, who you know, what your status is. But in both the American and the British system, it's made really clear as a fundamental democratic principle that we should all stand equal before the law. It shouldn't depend on who you are. Yes, and that punishment should be meted out, whether it's fines or uh, a prison time, for something done wrong, not as a scapegoat to please a, a political uh, uh, cohort. That's right, exactly. And, and we need to be on our guard if there is a big political impetus to prosecute. And we derive satisfaction from seeing someone jailed. That same satisfaction you get when you throw a tomato 300 years ago at the guy in the stocks and the pillories. That same satisfaction, we have the same brains. You know, we've got to be a bit careful that we don't enjoy that feeling of condemning someone a bit too much because the case might be misconceived and we might be condemning an innocent person. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for being so uh, generous with your, your time and insights. And I mean, thank you for covering this story and writing this book. Uh, everyone listening to this should, should buy it and read it. It's called uh, Rigged, The Incredible True Story of the Whistleblowers Jailed After Exposing the Rotten Heart of the Financial System. I feel like I mean, there's so much in the book that we haven't talked about that the details here really, you know, it's, it's worth buying the book. So people, uh, you know, they buy it and they read it. I, I think that they will. Loads of human stories. There's real emotion there. You yeah, know? absolutely. Uh, and any final question? So this, you know, the book, it's, it's out. Um, I, I'm sure you have, you know, breathed. Oh, my gosh, this, this work. I'm finally, I'm finished. <laughs> uh, what are you, what are you uh, working on now? What are you covering? And, you know, you are, you know, economics correspondent for the BBC. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm looking quite closely now at all the vulnerabilities there are in the financial system. I was asked with, you know, what we had with SVB Bank, the various other American banks that were sort of caught with their pants down, as it were, with exposure to US Treasuries on paper losses there. I think there are still all kinds of vulnerabilities on that. 
There are also, unfortunately, there's evidence in the UK that there's been some quite loose underwriting of various loans, not this time subprime mortgages, but I'm trying to work out where the loose money has gone and trying to trace any similar vulnerabilities that there might be to 2007 now, because it feels like a fairly similar sort of context. I'm not trying to say 2008 is around the corner like it was last time, but this kind of level of adjustment in interest rates is what I think we need to we'll be looking at, we've had the steepest rise in interest rates for what, 30 years? And that can't happen without consequences. And we all just in the financial journalism world need to work out where those consequences are coming down. Look under the hood a little bit, look under the skin and try to try to see where the vulnerabilities are. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. A system seized up uh, in, in March of last year. It seems like things would, would have turned in a nasty direction uh, very pleasantly that things se- seem to have, have turned around. Uh, you know, future is, is very hard to tell. Earlier, the point you made about, about LIBOR, about how there really is no price for everything. If you want to go buy an orange, oh, it costs, you know, X here. If you go to a different store around the corner, it costs a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And, you know, LIBOR is, the range is 354 to 357. There's no one, tr- one truth. I think the same is true about, I mean, because it's interest rates, if there's no pr- truth for interest rates, there's no truth for the price of, of bonds. Um, so. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the government allows and actually encourages banks to, at least in the U.S., I, I don't know about the U.K., you know, post, I mean, the paper value of the bonds, even if there's been a 500 basis point surge and the bond is now worth 80 cents instead of um, uh, a dollar. And, you know, likewise with loans, I think credit in the U.S. Uh, overall for banks has performed you know, much better than pretty much everyone, including myself, had had thought. But in the same way, it's not as if, you know, if there's a commercial real estate loan and there's a lot of people talking about some issues there. It's not as if it goes, oh, 100 cents, and then they mark it down to 99 cents, 98 cents. You know, things can go from 100 to, to, to zero. It's uh, discontinuous. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, I'd agree with you. It's always hard to read the runes, and sometimes it's easy to overstate the risks. You know, I mean, journalists, I think, have a tendency to overstate the risks because it's a better story. Mm-hmm. If it's all going to hell, then if it's all going to be fine in a way. Um, but often, well, as JP Morgan said, buy while there's blood on the streets. Who knows when the good time to buy is? Um, who knows? Maybe it's the time when everything seems most gloomy. I did think that there'd be an end of year rally, but then we had more trouble in the Middle East. So I was wrong about that one, too. And you learn if you try to predict these things that you can be wrong lots. So but but but, you know, in order to see the next scandal around the corner, in order to see the next credit crunch coming, we at least have to give it a try. And that the the vulnerabilities arising from the steepness of the rising interest rates, although perhaps overstated, I think I th- for me they're still the ones to watch. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, Andy, thanks again for coming on. Thanks everyone for uh, um, listening in and uh, uh, buy Andy's book. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jack. It's been real fun talking to you. Thanks for watching. Make sure to show some love to today's sponsor, Public, by going to public.com/forwardguidance. Again, that link is public.com/forwardguidance. Also, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on Twitter and on all podcast apps, including Spotify, where a video version of the show is also available. Thanks again for watching. Until next time.